Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. This is the first episode for the month of July, which is around the theme of AWS security. And for those celebrating the long weekend and listening to us on their 4th of July long weekend, thank you for listening in. And for everyone else, thank you for spending the weekend on the live stream as well. Today's episode, we have Srinath from Netflix. He is the head of cloud infrastructure security at Netflix. And we spoke about what does security look like at scale. As you're listening to this episode, think about this from a perspective. You have a large workload in AWS or even any other cloud, and you have millions of assets that you're looking at, or you're looking at trillions of data at any given point in time. How do you go about doing security at scale over there. We spoke about topics like, how do you do compliance? We spoke about topics like, why do people go for multi-cloud? We also spoke about topics for, what does threat detection and prevention look like at scale? And some of the challenges around doing threat detection when you have a million assets to look at on an AWS account structure. If you are listening to this and thinking, maybe this is not relevant for me because I don't have millions of assets on AWS, I would still recommend listening to this episode from just a perspective that if you are trying to benchmark yourself from, say, a scalability perspective, that you may have a very small amount of workload in cloud at the moment, and you want to go to that level where you can do security at scale because you know your organization is trying to go to that, I guess, new height, you probably would enjoy this episode even more because we go into conversations like if you are starting today and if you want to do automation or should you focus on threat detection, what should your focus be to build for scale in the future? We also spoke about the vendor in the space as well in terms of whether they are built for scale or whether they are more built for you have a small account base and you are able to more effectively use a single pane of glass. All that and a lot more in this episode. I think it's like a packed episode with great value. I'm grateful to Srinath for coming in and spending the time over here. If you are someone who enjoyed this episode, do share it with someone who you think would get value. Similar to yourself, they might already be at scale or they might be looking to hear on how they can get to scale. So uh, if you have any feedback as well, feel free to reach out. But if you enjoy this free episode from Cloud Security Podcast, feel free to subscribe and tell others about it. We, were, we are trying to go to 100K downloads this year. So if you can support us by sharing this, it would mean us a lot. But I hope you enjoyed the episode and enjoy the weekend. Otherwise, I will talk to you next week with another episode on the AWS security topic, which is the topic of the month for July in Cloud Security Podcast. Time is the enemy of security, and that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have and shows which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Learn more and try it for free at exonius.com. Richcrew is the all-in-one cloud security platform for developers. Richcrew analyzed thousands of open source Helm charts to bring you the newly released State of Helm Security Research Report. Learn their security insights and more at bridgeguru.io slash CSP. Hey, how are you doing? Good to have you on the show, man. I think it's, I'm really excited about this and thank you for coming in. Absolutely. Big fan of the show. It's you and I have been talking for some time and we have been talking about interesting things outside of this as well. 
But for people who may not know who Srinath, what was your path to your current role? Like, if you can tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say growing up in in India, I was not one of those those kids who had a, a computer hidden in a basement where I get to tinker around and learn basic Fortran, write video games, and and that kind of got me interested in computer security or computer science and then computer security. So it's a different path. In fact, it's a funny story. I was on my way to become a heart surgeon. Oh so man. I, I would not believe it, okay. Life and that kind of stuff. But then as fate would have it, in the last minute, I ended up changing and then picking computer science. But it was an interesting switch. Again, one more funny story. I, I got into computer science and the first two years learned a couple of programming languages. Then frankly, I couldn't think of doing this for the rest of my life, like writing code. Yeah. From a surgeon to you're like, I want to write code. Okay, go on, <laughs> keep going. Yeah, so I think that's when we learned C and, and Java in, in, in school. And, and and so, you know how programming languages don't change much. It's yeah. pretty constant. Of course, you're different environments. And, and then there's like, that's where the challenges come in, scale, distributed systems, all those things like domain knowledge you pick up along the way. But it ended up being, I was on the lookout for a field that has constant and security is that field in my mind there is always a, a cat and mouse learning that happens between in, in the field of security there's new attacks there is the defenders keep getting better the attacks keep getting sophisticated so in that way that the constant learning is what i was craving for and and that's how uh, i got into into interested in i started a voluntary group called msf network security forum in my third year undergrad and and that turned out to be a pretty successful group where people come together for security awareness learning and, and all that. From there, I picked up my master's in, in US with a thesis on intrusion and anomaly detection. And, and then that landed me a job at Google. That was my first job on the information security engineering team. And since then, the, the career has progressed, mostly getting deeper and deeper into various areas of security, Google, Facebook, Lyft, Mapbox, and, and now at Netflix. Yeah, I, I guess security is the only thing I know. Uh, I've forgotten coding. Nothing wrong with that though. I, I'm sure uh, cloud keeps you on your toes as well for a bit. So that makes me question, so what does cloud security mean for you? It's different for different people. The way I think about it is it's, it's protecting your assets. When I say assets, it could be like applications, infrastructure, it could be data that are hosted in the cloud from all kinds of threats. And when I say cloud, I'm, I'm talking about, it could be like a public cloud, like AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, or it could be a private cloud, like mostly what it was at, at Facebook. Facebook was mostly um, hosted in the private cloud in, in at least last time I was there in 2014, 2015, and now it's, it's gotten more complex. But when I say protecting, I, I think in uh, cloud security also means what, how do you protect? So you use a bunch of tools and techniques to, to make sure you apply a bunch of like policies and control. And when I say policy and controls in the cloud terminology, it means like identity and access management, or it could be like configuration management and use some of these techniques to apply certain policies and controls to secure your data apps and infrastructure. That's how I think about cloud, for example. So to your point, and we're talking about large scale and worthwhile calling out cloud, there is a complex environment out there. So it's not just one AWS account or one Azure account or one Google cloud account. A lot of people have kind of moved way beyond that over the years. And in, in talking about like a large land, what are some of the obvious challenges that you see when you're looking at a large environment of any cloud provider, whether it's AWS, Azure, or Google, like yeah. what's some of the challenges that you think that people would face? The way I think about it is cloud itself brings a bunch of unique challenges. 
when I say unique challenges, it could be like you might be in an environment where the, the environment is very complex. It could mm -hmm. be like two public clouds talking to each other, or it could be one public cloud and on-prem infrastructure, or it could be one private cloud and one public cloud. So, and I have examples of these too. And that itself could be unique in the cloud. The increased attack surface, if you have some ingress port that is not secured in the, in the cloud, and hackers are out there looking to uh, find these misconfigurations and exploit them. So in that way, the attack surface becomes pretty large when you host something in the cloud. There are always like a whole bunch of uh, workloads. So like workloads keep coming constantly and, and getting provisioned and deprovisioned constantly. So that, that's another challenge in the cloud, which kind of brings its own sort of unique challenges as far as securing it is concerned. And as you all know, like cloud misconfiguration is very easy. It's almost like it's one of those, you make a small mistake and the stakes are very high. So that's why it's, it's, it's very important to pay attention to, to misconfigurations in the cloud. And, and so these are all uh, some of the many unique challenges and compliance is another one. So there's like a whole bunch of things that, that gets thrown into a unique set of challenges in the cloud. And now when you have to add the scale, like you asked, scale just amplifies each of these. Like scale makes it harder to operate in a complex environment. It makes it harder for when you have a dynamic workload uh, setup that's, that's going on. Scale also brings in a whole bunch of like limitations in the cloud, like API codas. And, and limits that you have to constantly battle. I also see the current op open source tools, and, and if I see things like vendor solutions, yeah. I have, I'm, I'm yet to see some really scalable solutions out there. They work fine with, with 50,000 workloads, 100,000 workloads, but when you're talking about a million workloads constantly provisioning and deprovisioning, and, and that's the kind of environment where some of these tools fall apart, like fall flat on the ground. And, and there is also one more thing that we might want to think about here. So I would say native solutions, like cloud native solutions, for example, like AWS Config, Macy, CardDuty, Chronicle, Google's DLP. These are all the native solutions provided by the cloud providers themselves. And these scale well. I would say they are new and yet to be battle tested. Uh, I would say, like, I mean, I would say in the past three, four years is when you have seen some of these mature solutions that have come up, but they're yet to be tested against the threats. They are fairly expensive if, if when you operate, when you're especially operating at scale. And one of the patterns that I've seen, uh, again, this is one of the many patterns, is you tend to bifurcate your environment. Oh, this is a risky, smaller environment where I can deploy these expensive solutions. And while the rest of it, I will keep it on an automated autopilot world where I can put in all kinds of controls and closely watch it. So you end up deploying different set of solutions into different worlds based on the risks that you have. And in that way, you manage your risks and, and budget and, and all that at scale. That adds complexity yes. because to your point, you're almost training your staff to have two different kinds of skill sets. One is the cloud native skill set. Hey, we need to be able to use, I don't know, AWS Security Hub or AWS Config better and in a most cost optimized way. Because clearly cost optimization is a thing in AWS or I mean in, in cloud in general. So then the other half is about, hey, if we use open source, then there is a limit size limitation. So then if scale is a challenge there, yeah. So even do you find that skill set becomes a challenge as well then? Yeah, I would say it, it would. And I think, but it's not so different because at the end of the day, we are after threats. A threat could be things like a, a cloud asset being misconfigured, or it could be like a least privileged or a most privileged IAM role being exploited for some reason. When you think about it from that angle, I do feel like if you put on your security engineer hat, I do feel like it's not so much different. 
in terms of a, from a skill set perspective. Of course, there's all this research that goes in in the first three months or six months of deploying the solution. You're going to tweak it, tune it, and then reduce false positives and all that. And I hope when you know, some of these are going to converge at one layer. So for example, maybe it could be the response layer, or maybe it could be the alerting layer. So everything contributes to this alerting layer. And from there, you determine what you want to do with the output or with the outcomes of, of these tools that are being deployed. And, and so that gives you kind of like a single pane of glass but in a way that it scales, it's not expensive, and it can it's also manageable. I love the whole single pane of glass conversation as well, because sometimes it feels unrealistic because you have such complex infrastructure as well. Like if you think about it, you have a compute, then you have container compute as well, then you have serverless as well. And from a security perspective, you need to look at all of them, but there is no single vendor that does all of them. But if they do, they don't do it at scale. Like Perfect. I'm sure there are challenges from that perspective as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So this is again one of the unique challenges of the cloud. I think the cloud providers keep launching services left and every year. We stay staying competitive and also frankly meeting the demand of all kinds of unique applications that people want to launch. As a part of this, there are technologies like what you mentioned, like compute heavy, serverless, containers, and 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 in general things like uh, what's the latest one, like Akron or what's the latest one that AWS launched, right? Things like that keep coming yeah. all the time. So uh, I would say um Always, I, I like going back to the fundamentals. So let's go back to the fundamentals. What are my threats? What is it I'm trying to protect? What are the bad guys who are going to come after uh, my and my data, my environment, my infrastructure, my apps? And if you take a risk-based approach to to such threats, then that is going to inform like, okay, how am I going to serve? In that way, you are going, you are starting somewhere and then expanding based on the threats you have. And this essentially would give you a list of the must-have checklist and a, a nice to have checklist. So mm -hmm. talking about containers, I would say one of the must have things would be like just-in-time credentials for container. In mm -hmm. my mind, that's must have because I mean, containers run in, in different clouds and they come and go and we would like to secure it as much as possible. So in that way, the, the, the just-in-time credential fits the must have bucket. Like restricting SSH access to a container, maybe it's a nice to have. So depending, of course, depending on your threats. So if yeah. you're worried about insiders, maybe it's not. So I think that gives you a, a, a bunch of checklists and then you go after that in a way to 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 reduce the risks based on the threats that you oh, I, I love it, man. This is already taking a very interesting uh, turn from my perspective because I'm glad you went into the compute side of things. I also I'm glad that you spoke about the scale side of things. How does detection look like in a scale? I'm just trying to think in terms of where there's a cloud native approach and there is the vendor-based approach, but now we have this split brain situation where we have uh, one side being looked after by this vendor because to your point, they're more riskier, so they need more eyeballs. What's the challenge with threat detection at scale? Yeah, so, and, and I think when we say talk about detection, I also think we should not leave the prevention out of the picture. So let's focus on the, on the native detection part that you started the conversation with. Yeah. Um, so let's take an example of VPC flow logs. So uh, VPC flow logs are, are pretty voluminous. There's network flow logs happening and like every packet that goes on your network, there's a log for that. Yeah. So picture that at scale, it's going to be like literally trillions of logs coming in an environment like again, like Netflix or Facebook or, or Google. And, and that's what I'm keeping in mind when I say scale. How do you pick out that needle in a haystack? So in a way that it's not, you, you're not swimming in an ocean of false positives. In, in that way, I, I think it's a it's very hard problem to get to do the detection at scale. So that's where I've seen various approaches. In fact, we built one at Facebook where you take a layered approach. So kind of look for like broad strokes detection that happens across the board and then look for suspicious events. Again, when you say you, I'm talking about like workloads, right? Which are essentially looking for these things. And then you gradually go up the pyramid 
trying to reduce the noise along the way. And, and in that way, you get to this tip of the pyramid, which is going to give you like a, a, a small set of alerts that humans need to look at with, with a lot of context, with a lot of enrichment on top of it. And then maybe there is room to escalate that to, to an incident if you're sure that it's an attack or if you're sure that it's, it needs to be remediated. So if I were to build from scratch, I would build something like that because it works well at scale, because there are multiple layers and you can have checks and balances based on the scale that you can handle. But in a cloud native world, I feel like I, I would still recommend starting with threats and, and by doing a risk analysis and understanding this is the, the threat I'm worried about. And there is, and currently I don't have a solution for it. So when you understand that, I would say, okay, now let me go look at what is the cloud native offering for that solution. Maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. Sometimes cloud native solutions could be a black box. There's also that that happens. Once that is done, I would say do a build versus buy analysis. So I was like, okay, should I build this something to address this gap or should I buy some, some vendor solution that might work at, at scale? And, and so then you look at your business and then the impact and, and budget and, and things like that, and then see if you can go buy that solution or go build that solution, depending on the resources and and engineering and security engineering talent you have on the team. So that, that's how I, I would approach a detection at, at scale. And again, you can go into the detection versus prevention conversation. I'm glad you called out both threat detection and prevention. Although they bring their own challenges, they can be unique based on whether you go for a cloud native solution versus a vendor base. Because I think for me personally, the whole, at least what I find is an interesting piece of our conversation as well is that when you're trying to just catch up on the threat detection, not just from your AWS or a cloud provider, but also from the tools maybe you may be using as well across the board. Like you, I don't know, you may have a particular version of Windows or a particular version of, and you're like, there's a critical patch that comes out. Great. All right. So forget about that. Let's just do this. And the, the, the sheer complexity at scale for me always made it fascinating. And I always find, apart from what you just mentioned, uh, it, it's another layer of, you want the development environment to be running at scale, not restricted by the kind of programs that they should be. Oh, you can only use Python and not anything else, even though TypeScript is the language of choice and makes it even better. But what, what that does for people like us is that, oh, now I have, I need, I need a tool or something for TypeScript. I need a tool or something for my containers. Bring that all back to like one single layer because Assets in cloud are also dynamic. You know, you've detected a threat, but by the time you got to it, the resource doesn't even exist because <laughs> dynamic scaling. And to your point, if you're doing this through across like a million work, I, what are some of the things that come to your mind with that kind of uh, a challenge? I, I'm not even adding multiple cloud. This is like one cloud. Yeah, so that's a good question. And, and this is something that we battle pretty often. It's, it's not like one, you make a decision once and it's like, it's a, it's a done deal. Yeah, and it's totally on top of our mind. I mean, look at the number of vendors we have in the space. Like, Huge, like a lot of them. I mean, frankly, as I said earlier, I'm yet to see a scale, yet to see a scalable tool that gives you a single pane of glass across all cloud environments, and, and that gives me visibility into all kinds of assets that I care about. And this is maybe somebody's going to put something out there. We tried something at, at Netflix, and we built a tool called Security Monkey. And that was oh, yeah. cross cloud, yeah. But that itself didn't scale for our needs, and we had to deprecate. And we are building something now for for AWS specific, and maybe we can extend it to multi cloud and, and go forward. But this time we learned a whole bunch of lessons, and that is going to help us do it better and think scale early on. So there are there is promise. We also built a, a similar tool at Snap called Panopticon. 
and that tool worked really well for Google Cloud. And and but then the the company started moving a, a lot of stuff into AWS and wanted to go truly into a multi-cloud fashion. And then it quickly started becoming the scale started becoming a problem. I don't know how it works now. It, this is my information from 2016, but I do think uh, that this is a, a, a problem that definitely plagues the industry. And and frankly, one school of thought here, Ashish, is I feel maybe you don't need to know all assets. You only have to go after the risky ones. If you have a pulse on the risks that your business faces, only go narrowly after those assets that you care. For example, uh, let me give you uh, an example. Let's say if you're worried about internet-facing assets. So only go collect inventory, like really everything that is internet-facing and have a, a good set of policies, single pane of glass for internet-facing assets. There are some asset inventory solutions that's out there who try to get all S3 object data. And it could be literally billions and billions of them. Why do you need that? Maybe you just need bucket level access if your buckets are homogenous. In that way, you might have some knobs. You can also go for shorter retention. You don't have to keep it for all six months or all, all 12 months. Or you might have to not go for real-time assets. You can do go non-real-time if you were to collect it, scale becomes a problem. But there's also on the flip side, if there is that one incident that hits your company and you needed that one piece of information from six months ago that does not exist, then you're in trouble. And so you're essentially taking a risk based on the threats you have. And it's a, it's a risk management problem. So I, I yeah. frankly always these conversations come up with, I think. Security is, is risk management. Yeah, it is. To your point about the internet-facing assets as well, uh, I want to give an exercise for people who are listening in. Just to identify the number of internet-facing assets at any given point in time, it's not easy. Yeah. Like, no, it, it, it sounds easy. Yeah, yeah I just want to know well, how many assets are internet-facing. And then you go into this layered deep conversation of, are you talking about API gateways? Are you talking about server? Are you talking about EC2 instances? Or man, even that simple thing is so complex sometimes. Yes, public buckets, you have static assets being served up out of public buckets that could be public. And yeah, we heard about that. And thankfully, at least at scale that I've seen in recent past, that's manageable. So in, in the way, if you narrowly focus on that particular problem, you can write tools or there are tools that exist out there where you can at least go after that and get some amount of idea. Maybe you get to 80% or 90%. And, and I kind of like the approach as well, that once you identify at least that, that's a great point to come and go, okay, so at least I know what my internet-facing ones are. And then for applications that are hosted on the internet, I may have another approach. But to your point, at least you're not feeling that it's this mammoth of a thing that you have to take over and, uh, you know, spend like, I don't know, because I think to, to your point, I don't know if you believe this, but I truly believe uh, you can spend hours, maybe even months, years trying to catch up. But by then, your cloud provider has already started creating new ex new softwares. The old ones are obsolete. You're on a version 3 or something, which is on version 10 now. I, I, I mean, the scale is a challenge from a pace of even the pace at which we are trying to keep up with the cloud provider. Yeah, that is very, very true. So, so this is where I, I, I'm a big, big fan of, of simplicity, especially when you're faced at scale, go with really simple solutions that is going to give you the biggest bang for buck, as opposed to getting into a conglomerate sort of uh, a big set of tools that you would like to operate and try to go after casting a wider net to take care of all the threats, all the risks. So that is going to help a lot. The other thing is I typically see vendor solutions or open source tools fall into two buckets. One is functionality. I think they, like recently I looked at a demo of, of, a, of a tool called Orca Security. So it looks very promising for multi-cloud. It's truly a single plane of glass for 
for all three major clouds. You yep. can drill down into two instances. From there, you can go to containers. From there, you can go to the vulnerable instances. And from there, you can map it to CVE. And, and then it essentially shows you everything in your environment. So functionality device is there, but yep. the work at scale, because they are going to run into, they use this thing called site scanning. They are going to probably run into API limits and CODAs and things like that. So probably it might not work for the Netflixes of the world or the Facebooks of the world. For scale, there is another group of companies where they only operate at scale, but the functionality is not there yet in terms of going after the sophisticated threats and, and attacks we face today. So this is where I think we typically see at scale companies building solutions that is very customized and keeping it as a secret sauce. Thankfully, Netflix has taken a very transparent approach and, and we try to put out as much as possible on all the learnings. Even recently, we open sourced a tool called ConsoleMe that we've been working on for, for the past three years. And we've gotten a lot of community engagement. And kudos to everyone who gets involved in doing the open sourcing as well. Sounds like I need to bring someone from Morica to talk about what they do. I've got a comment here from Darpan and interesting thought as well. Oftentimes, it's the compliance framework that defines those inventory and retention policies. So is it about time that we should try and change the compliance framework first? Yeah, governance and compliance is, again, one of the unique uh, aspects of the cloud because there is a shared responsibility model you need to understand who is responsible for what aspect of the compliance. So to answer Darpan's question here uh, specifically, I feel if you're doing security engineering, if you're worried about the risks and threats, compliance should come along with you. So you should already, so for example, this one retention policy, let's take that as an example. If the retention policy is 30 days for anything, like let's say the software locks or something like that, that you have yeah. right, compliance framework is, but if for incident response, if you have 90 days, because that's, that gives you a bigger one, but so you already met your compliance obligation, but your requirements is more stringent than what the compliance framework. So I hope we, we prioritize security and more security and privacy way more than compliance. And of course, compliance is an obligation. I don't, I'm not indicating in any way that we should ignore it. You might get into trouble, but I would say if you put security first, then I think compliance should come along is, is, is how I would put it. Yep. No, fair enough. And I think it's worthwhile. It's pretty well known in the industry that just being compliant doesn't really mean you're secure. It just means you're compliant. That's pretty much what that really means. Keeping that whole scale conversation in mind as well, risk and compliance, anyone listening to this, if they have kind of made that separate group of, hey, these are my high risk kind of assets that I need absolutely be on the ball for, maybe there could be a way to approach that compliance and framework as well. So I think in some of the past examples of what we used to do for PCI compliance, it's probably one of the hardest ones. I, yes. I truly believe to, to get past, we fed ramp or, or they go to those ones as well. So what we're doing was basically, we were just like isolate those, that, those environments completely from everything else, like absolutely separate AWS organization, separate everything. It just means billing is complex for us, but that doesn't matter because you kind of have that separated and it's like that body of asset is that's just how it's going to be but everything else can still go at scale without being just because these have to be pca compliant doesn't mean everything has to be compliant and do go go through this rigorous process so i definitely find a personal attachment to for that kind of conversation i was going to ask with say why we spoke about compliance as well we spoke about maintaining visibility of asset in terms of approaching this as a new person so some people listening might be coming from a perspective that sounds like at scale would be a lot more challenging. They might just be at a much smaller scale. They may not have millions of assets that they might be looking at. You kind of touched on the layered approach earlier. And 
outside of that, is there anything you recommend for like today? Obviously, budget is a thing before going for a vendor, but what are some of the challenges why for the open source uh, side of things? You mentioned, I mean, Netflix does it themselves. You guys have been releasing tools for a while, Security Monkey, the whole, the Simeon Army, the whole Simeon Army tool set that's been released by Netflix, which is definitely great to check out. I would recommend people to do that. What are some of the other things that you look at from that perspective, like from an open source perspective? Yeah. So, so frankly, there are too many tools. So, I mean, I have a spreadsheet, like, you know, in layman's way, where I keep track of all the tools that are coming that is specific to my area, like cloud infrastructure security. And you believe it or not, that list is 88 engineers. We cannot evaluate anything and everything that gets put out there. In fact, there was a hack project that I did recently, and I tried to go ahead and evaluate this tool. And it was like full of bugs and just didn't work. Right? Yeah. Even the basic thing that it promised, forget scale and, 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 and things like that. So the barrier for putting a tool out there is pretty low today. I'm, I'm saying like Netflix is not perfect too, where right? we essentially put out our first version and then keep continuing improving around it. And the community participation makes it better and better as we go along to that aspect. So I would say keeping your ear to the ground on what is becoming popular in terms of scale and threats and, and, uh, and maintainability, like is it fresh? So are people doing bug fixes? And, and then is it, is it, is it still stuck in Python 2.7 or is it like 3.8? So that, that kind of thing would be very helpful. And earlier, if you remember, I mentioned you have this, your risky environment where there are a lot of unknowns and there is this, this huge environment where most of your business runs. So I would say, try these tools that you're, that is popular, like your top five or top three that you, you have been hearing constantly about from a value add perspective in this yep. risky environment, see the value add you are going to get out of it. If it makes sense continue expanding that until you hit a scale. So in that way, I think you are trying to take value out of everything that's coming out of the open source community. But at the same time, you are not just turning off your turning off your ears towards something that that is that might be really good and fantastic out there. Well, like Parliament is one idea, one example. Yeah. So we looked at it and we use it. So that kind of stuff would be very helpful to, to see so that you don't have to recreate stuff that if, if something already exists. So that's the biggest advantage here. Yeah. And I think to your point, worthwhile calling out as well, man. I think when people do release open source, they're volunteering their time. It's not like they're paid to do that. So I think I definitely feel it's worthwhile giving it that respect that, hey, someone just volunteered their hours which they could have been doing anything, watching Netflix, actually watching Netflix instead of working, like working on like an open source solution for it. They put out time for this. So it's worthwhile contributing back as well, if you can in any way, because and to your point, everyone's trying to, I, I guess, grow the community because everyone realizes that, you know, there is a challenge and one individual or one team cannot solve this problem by themselves. So they kind of have to like almost get the community behind them. And I'm sure we've only talked, spoken about compliance, threat at scale and compute. But there's so many more challenges to go through this just this one single conversation. I'm going to shift gears a bit because I've got a couple of questions that came from the audiences. So I want to definitely, I mean, uh, I want to tackle them as well, which were, they couldn't make it. So they were sending me the questions across. I think Vineet is one of our regular. He said a hi because he's giving an exam today. Good luck with the exam, man. I've got Magno Logan's question regarding scaling cloud security. How do you scale security when you're doing multi-cloud? That's the first question. Followed by also... With infra as code, who should be responsible for the security of that code and the infra that is created with it? Let's tackle the, the multi-cloud question first. Uh, I think there are, I've seen this done a few times now. I feel like untrained staff is one big 
problem. So typically what happens is, oh, you're really good at one cloud. And yep. then somebody in the leadership decides, oh, we go, we're going to go add a second cloud. Are we going to add a third cloud? And the staff remains the same. The number of security engineers, developers, everybody remains the same. And now we have this 50% more capabilities or you need to pick up. And, and frankly, public clouds are, have similar constructs and, and controls. But when it comes to the implementation, it's very different. Like IAM in GCP is very different from IAM in, in, in AWS. Here to give you an example. Yeah. And I also think tools today don't work seamlessly across multiple. We built a tool at, at Snapchat and, and we kind of, it worked very well for Google Cloud. But then when we decided to go into AWS too, it's not that we are going to get it up Google Cloud, but it's going to still there. And then we're going to add AWS on top of it. We had to figure out like a do a one-to-one mapping. Oh. This here means this, and that here means that, and let's see how our developers are not going to get confused when they act, when they request access to cloud resources. So it turned out to be a, a big exercise, like a three month long exercise. And still while the business is running at its own pace. Wow. Yeah. And, and so that kind of challenges always comes in when you come into multi-cloud, you also have the problem of uh, identity management. So there is like. If you have one workload running in, in one cloud, what identity are you going to use to make the same workload run in the other cloud? Do you have, do you trust one cloud more than the other? Do you do more, you keep your identities in one and then move the workloads on the other side in a seamless way with all the auditing and continuous compliance and everything being in place. So it's, it's frankly can get quickly, very messy when we are going down the, the multi-cloud route. So yeah. I highly recommend doing a more thoughtful approach going after your well-established, well-drawn workloads, move those first, and then you can continue the unknown ones in a very in a staged fashion. So that's how I, I would recommend. There is also the danger of duplication of controls. Like let's say if you were to do threat detection and, and remediation at, at scale, you do it in one cloud, then you go ahead and then try to do the same thing in the other cloud. So you have the same in both the clouds. Are you going to do remediation in both the places? Are you going to do it in one place when single pane of glass is last? Does automation solve this? What you were saying earlier, you have automation, one set of automation for AWS and one set of automation for GCP, one set of automation for Azure. I'm thinking about people who may be listening in. Wow, I'm only on one at the moment and I haven't done automation. Now, if I add another one, it's not as smooth, but it's an easier transition if you've done some kind of automation in at least one of your cloud. So that's a good question. Again, I always go back to your threats and, and risks. Threats and risks the same in both the clouds. If it is, then maybe what you're saying might make sense. Or if you have figured out automation in one, maybe that is going to give you a baseline to start somewhere to do it in the other cloud. But the other cloud itself might bring its own set of challenges. To give you an example, privilege escalation is very different in GCP versus, versus AWS. The way you look for privilege escalation in AWS is very different from privilege escalation uh, scenarios in, in GCP. There is a nice uh, black hat talk on this topic of privilege escalation in GCP that I would either recommend your listeners to take a look. Yeah, but, yeah. I think D Dylan gave the talk yeah. and Alison, we actually had them talk about this. So if people haven't heard the episode, we actually did a whole episode on privilege escalation in Google Cloud last month. 100% check, check the talk out. Yeah. And uh, I think you cannot take automation in one and plug it into the other one. Um, of course, the same framework like Lambdas and remediation, like integration with Slack and those kind of things you can borrow and make it work. Some of the frameworks you can actually make it work, but that yeah. itself is very different and you might want to go a little bit deeper than what, than lifting and shifting and shifting and lifting. Let's say if someone's starting today and they're listening to this and they may not have done automation or they might have done some automation, but they're trying to figure out the, the security of it. Like what are some building blocks that they can start with? Like maybe identify assets active, which are risky, not risky, then do a threat analysis. Like what's your thought on those? Like where does one start? Yeah. It's, it's like the, the first 90 days of a CISO. So you gotta like, what are you, where are you going to spend your time on? So I would say assets is, is the, the first thing. Like 
like you need to map out your attack surface. What yeah. are your, what is your attack surface, right? What is your exposure? And yeah. once you figure that out, then you need to determine everything that is behind it. Let's say you have an, you have a uh, hundred internet facing apps. So yeah. there is maybe uh, billions and trillions of cloud assets that support this hundred internet facing apps. So this is like the first order and second order and third order. So you're essentially in a way mapping out, coming up with a graph based relationship of cloud assets. And of course there are tools for that too. And after that, you ask questions, you ask questions, things like, okay, this app doesn't talk to this app, but if I were to go and, and poke around, can they really talk? Are the security groups open between the two? So this kind of, when you start asking these questions, then you start poking your environment and then saying, oh, wait, that doesn't make sense. Why, why is this set of apps talking to that set of apps? Maybe we should add a security group and block that and separate them because the threats are for each, each of these classes of apps are different. So in yeah. that way, you're kind of going deeper and deeper, almost like threat hunting, but at the configuration level. So in that way, you go over like peeling the layers of an uh, onion and harden your environment based on your asset visibility that you have. And again, I, I would say if you are a, a healthcare company, you got to like prioritize data security. If you are like a FinTech, of course you got to like prioritize compliance and, and PCI and, and those kind of frameworks. So, yeah. and, and that's where I think the threats and risks come into picture. And based on that, you go harden what makes sense based on your assets that you have. I love this conversation, but I love where it's going as well. Is there an example that you think of, if you were to benchmark, what does a mature cloud environment look in your mind from a security perspective? You can go as specific as you want. I'm curious in terms of one or two elements that like, we could be identity access management or could be asset management, whatever it may be. I'm just curious from your perspective, pick any, do not, I know it's a super broad question. I would say, first of all, you got to align with your culture of the company. So once you align with the culture of the company, then you determine what are the things that you are most worried about from a, from a business risk point of view. So from a mature environment perspective, I'm going to, if I were to come into an environment, which is, which is at scale and, and I want to like, try to do my best in securing the, the everything possible based on threats, I would say first tap into prevention, like try to put guardrails where obvious things are, are out of the way. For example, if you have a, a, a connection between your company and, and a vendor where PII data is flowing and nobody knows what's going on, you got to stop the bleeding there. You got to like put some controls and guardrails in there so that you should be able to get some visibility into what is actually going on. And mm -hmm. that is that is where the, the prevention angle comes in. This is where I think Netflix has talked about guardrails uh, quite a bit in the previous talks and, and things. So once you have those in place, I would say I would lean heavily into detection. So because detection has like a ton of benefit. So you can operate with limited staff. It's hugely, you can rely a lot on automation. It's low friction for developers. It lets your developers move much faster and, and uh, you can literally uh, adapt uh, to new threats much easily. If you were to, let's say there's a new threat, threat comes in tomorrow and you have to change your workflow that developers are used to a lot. That takes like maybe months and months of conversation. And, and so instead, if you had a detection and you have like a, a quick way to get visibility into if that were to happen, just alert or just go ahead and close the hole. If you have that kind of a setup set up, that is one example of a maturity in, in your environment, but you should align with your company's culture. So that is where the, the, the culture comes in. If your uh, environment is, is all about very controlling, like let's say it's a, it's a FinTech highly regulated environment, detection is not going to help. You're going to get into trouble with compliance and, and governance. But if it's an environment like, like freedom and responsibility, like what we have at, at, at Netflix, be for the for a large part, we trust our developers and we and we share information pretty transparently across across the company. In that way, you can lean more into into detection. Of course, you gotta tap into prevention as much as possible. 
but you don't have to go all the way creating friction for your developers. But then somewhere you have to draw the line and, in, and, and that's where they both operate hand in hand towards a mature environment like what you're, what you're suggesting. And one last thing I also want to, want to mention is incident detection response is basics. So one way I would measure the maturity of a program is how ready are you for, your, for an incident? Let's say if you do a red team exercise and you figure out you're scrambling for logs, it's so easy to own your environment. The credentials are all over the place. The source codes are in the repository. If you run into these kind of problems, then it's not a mature environment. That kind of is a, is a light bulb should go on. It's like, okay, I have a lot of work to do and I got to maybe start somewhere and slowly start chipping away at maturing my program. So one last thought on that is maturity is a range. It's a sliding scale. You can essentially, you're comfortable where you're at. Or if you're not, you got to keep moving. That's how I think. Uh, a friend of mine said this very widely. And I love the scale conversation as well, because what what he mentioned was the fact that, you know, there's always like 40,000 things to do. Even if you do one of them this week, you're still much better than what you were yesterday. So it's not about doing all the 40,000 things in one day. It's just going one step at a time. Like I think someone that I used to report to ages ago, he asked me a question was, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. So that that's for me has been always like, oh yeah, you don't, you don't get mature, like super mature tomorrow. There's like, there's a scale to it. I've got a question here and it's probably the last one for the interview. Zina, in your opinion, what are the main reasons why organizations go for multi-cloud? Great discussion thought by the way. So why do you think people go for multi-cloud? So of course, I'll get the obvious out of the way. The obvious is cost reasons. Sometimes you want to pit one cloud against the other and then get discounts from one over the other. And they might want to just try to say, hey, if you, this month, if you give me more, a higher, a heavier discount, I'm going to move my, all my containers here or if you are not going to give me i'm going to move there so you might want to get a knob so you get to have a good control on the on the cost so that that could be one big reason why people might move to cloud multi-cloud the other thing that i've seen is a lack of services for example when i was at lyft we had this problem where the the ml stuff on gcp was much better than this was way back in 2018 i don't know what it is now that was a reason why lyft wanted to spin up stuff in in, in google cloud for example so, and that was slowly the data started leaving AWS and going to it. And then the feature extraction and ML model started running in GCP. So that, that kind of was taking off in, in that way. There were some services like Spanner, which was on GCP that was not available on, on, on AWS. So that the lack of services might be a reason why some people might prefer moving more towards multi-cloud. Frankly, I feel public clouds should invest time on interoperability. So I, I, I very much love to see a day where Cloud providers are working well with each other. They are working on standards like OpenIDC for, for identities across clouds. Open, adopt open standards, cross-cloud workloads much easy, cross-cloud data, data transfer is much easier without saturating the pipe. So that kind of stuff would be would be really cool. But there are a, a bunch of these reasons which I've seen people might want to go to more. Awesome. The reason I was smiling as well, I was hoping you would mention it, but you haven't, so I'll, I'll call it out. It's also because a lot of people have egos, you know, and everyone wants like, hey, this is my car is bigger than your car kind of a conversation as well. I'm not going to call out names, but I think it's an interesting human dynamics that play a role in this as well. To Srinath, you've mentioned excellent points about the services and the machine learning part. Uh, by the way, I think my understanding is Google Cloud leading the way with ML. Uh, what I found in a lot of times, even though the, there was no reasoning for services, it was usually someone's ego that got to the point like, hey, I've got a credit card, I'm going to swipe it because that's literally, that's what it takes for you to start using Google Cloud, even though you've been like 90% AWS. 
So uh, that, that was one more reason that happens as well. So there's a human layer to that as well, Zenith. I don't know if you've seen that yourself, Katrina. Yes, I have. I have actually. This is this reminds me of uh, of uh, bittersweet memories from one of my past jobs where... It, yeah. it's, so it's not only my thing. And so Zenith agrees as well. She agrees on the ego part. And thank you. But I also would love to see the interoperability of the... Oh yeah, 100%. Interoperability among the major CSPs. But unfortunately, it'll take a long time, I imagine, for Google to work and... For them to share data, that in itself, would that be third world war? I think that would be third. I, I think each of the cloud providers have done a great job in, in they have made a lot of our pain points go away at yes. such less cost. I think the world is much better this the, the past decade over the decade before that. It used to be all locked up in, in Google Cloud data center or Google's data centers or Facebook's data centers and Amazon data centers. Now it's available for the world. And I, I, I think we are made a lot of progress, but they're all businesses, they are in it to make money, and I, we all understand that that being the primary reason. And and but I think if the industry demands multi-cloud interoperability, then I, I think the cloud providers are gonna work on it because yeah. from the customers I doubt it's gonna come from the cloud providers. Yeah, because I, I think the whole cloud native approach with CNCF and Kubernetes and all that that's come through as well, that's yeah. an attempt at doing the whole interoperability as well. Perfect. I mean, instead if the cloud providers themselves come up with it, then we don't have to have this separate set of things that we can. That's it. That is true. Yes. That's yeah. So by the way, I'm, I can keep talking to you for hours, man. I'm just conscious of your time as well. Yeah. So I've got, I'm going to switch gears. So switching gears to our fun section. This is just uh, three questions, nothing technical, just to get to know you a bit more as well. And they're not super personal as well. So you can totally answer this. So the first one, what do you spend most time on when you're not working on cloud or technology? Uh, how, how far back can I go? Or does it have <laughs> or however far you want to go. It, it, it's just something that you enjoy doing, but which is outside of your cloud thing. Maybe come something recent. Yeah, yeah. So five years ago, if you had asked me what you see in the back of the wall, that's what I used to do. I used to tra travel a lot. So this is of the world. And we used to, we like sending postcards to ourselves from each of the countries we have visited. And then we pin them against the wall. So we are, we, I took off like a, a year and a half break and, and visited about 30, 35 countries. And wow. that was like a, a, a big, I would highly recommend it if you can, if you can. but it, it was a, a good, good way to take your mind off of security. Traveling and photography are the two things that I do outside work uh, that I really enjoy. But the past year has been more, I'm a, a new dad, so more like parenthood and, and security. There are definitely a lot of relations between parenthood and security. A, a lot of empathy for your customers, for your engineers, for your for your developers. And that's that's what parenthood is. A, a lot of parenthood has been for me at least. Uh, so. Congratulations on becoming a father as well, man. So yeah, I'm sure now uh, all three of you can send postcards now. Cool. <laughs> the second question, what is something that you're proud of, but is not on your social media? Are you, are you someone who posts a lot on social media? I, I used to work at Facebook. So now basically everything that you're doing, you're proud of, but it's not on social media. So it is in social media, but it's in more one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations and, and smaller groups. And but yeah. broadcast mode is I have dialed down uh, a, a lot. So, but I mean, your, your question is, is is interesting. I would say what I value more these days is more relationships. So I, I think I used to be a big believer like two two decades ago uh, when I got into like computer science and, and security and all that. I was yeah. always striving for the smartest solution, smartest tool. I got to be better than the attackers, right? So that's how I used to think. But I, I think over the past decade, it has taught me that security leadership is all about relationship building. If you were to take a practical approach to a security, then you have to invest heavily into uh, people's side of things because people are the biggest part of the of the ecosystem that we are trying to secure. It's not just computer. Yeah. So I, I think I do spend quite a bit of time and that I don't 
posting on social media and, and others in, in relationship building, networking, and, 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 and things like that. So, I mean, uh, a call for your listeners. If you're interested in connecting with me, feel free to reach out on, on LinkedIn. I'm always uh, interested to hear stories mentoring apprenticeship all those things are, are are a great way to awesome awesome and i think that answered uh zina's question as well because she was asking how do we connect with you so i guess so feel free to reach out to Srinath on on linkedin as well and uh, ms loves your idea on sending postcards i love it as well because i'm like i'm gonna try doing that whenever it's covid safe to uh start traveling again i love the idea well so i want to add to the postcard idea we also write what we liked about that country in that postcard. So like 10 years from now, flip and see, oh, that's what reminds me about that country. Maybe they were great at some drinks or maybe they were great at some hospitality or maybe they were great at some like like taking advantage of tourists, for example, in Turkey for, for me. And so we used to write such highlights that kind of brings back old memories. Wow. That's a, that's a great idea. And I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, steal that as well, similar to Emma's. I've got a lot, one last question for you before we wrap up. What's your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share? Oh, this is one thing that keeps changing. Uh, I would say now it used to be Italian, but now it's it's more like new American. I, I would say that that's been a, a thing because we live here in Bay Area and there's a whole bunch of new restaurants that are popping up. So, so that's not burger or what's, what's considered like a new American? So it's, it's almost like, like a fusion fusion from like the South um, and combined with some, some European, for example. And, and so, or it could be our, let's say if you were to think about a burger, but a flavor of your, of your European, or maybe if you were to add some vegan twist on, on an existing popular meat dish. So that could be like, like another one. So oh, it's, right. it's almost like when you hear a name, it, it doesn't ring a bell. But when your food shows up, it's full of surprises. So that's how. That's yeah, how. fair enough. Uh, cool. I feel like uh, once this we can start traveling, I'd love to try the new American wave of food. Then, <laughs> awesome, Dan. Thank you so much for taking the time out. I really appreciate it. And I think I personally feel I got a lot of value. Folks who heard this and left the comments and are still listening are definitely. I feel they got value as well. So you mentioned they can connect with you on LinkedIn. So I'll definitely encourage people to do that. But I, I totally enjoyed this and I can't wait to have you again, man. I think this is going to be, I feel like I can talk to you for hours. So, but I'm going to give you back your, back your Saturday evening so you can go back and spend your time with your, with your little one. But thanks so much for coming in, man. I really appreciate this. It was a, it was a lot of fun and we should definitely. Well, awesome. And so for everyone else, I've got my background music going so I can just, but thank you so much for coming in and we will see you next weekend with another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.